podcast is a conduit of hope, safety, and trust. And our purpose and vision for our lives is to be in service to others and to support them in understanding that they matter. Through open dialogue and conversation, through sharing ourselves, our lives, insights, perspectives, and experiences, we will offer solutions for any challenges or adversities you may be faced with. And we want you to know that you can come to us for support, guidance, and inspiration. This podcast is sponsored by Laguna View Detox, a state-of-the-art substance abuse and alcohol detox and residential program. We are not affiliated with any 12-step program. If you or a loved one is suffering from addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you need detox or residential treatment from drugs and alcohol, please contact 888-448-1884 to speak with a specialist. And now, with the Recovery Media Podcast, your hosts, Jim Grant and Louis Iacona. Welcome, everyone. This is uh, another episode of Recovery Media Podcast with Jim Grant and Louis Iacona. Today, we have a very dear friend of, of mine on the podcast. His name is Danny Albert. I'll tell you guys a little bit about Danny. As a person in long-term recovery, Dan understands the importance of upholding the rights of individuals in recovery. Despite the stigma often associated with recovery and addiction, Dan recognizes and illuminates the positive aspects of conducting a life based in recovery from substance use disorder. His personal, personal mission is to inspire and improve the lives of others. He aims to help others, whether they have a substance use disorder, are in recovery, have lost a loved one, or are a family member impacted by the disease of addiction. What a start, man. That is, uh, you know, I love you, dude. I, you know, I've watched you continue to grow um, in your heart and also on your page. So, you know, I can't wait for the listener to get to know you and know what resources you have in your area. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you for the the invite to do this. Um, as Lewis said, my name is Danny Albert. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and what that means for me is I haven't had a mood or a mind-altering substance since April 30th, 2017. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about now, I'm just going to jump into my story. Um, my hometown is Steelton, Pennsylvania. I'm from a small town. Uh, people that know about Steelton is uh, we're a small town with a lot of heart. Um, melting pot of a lot of different cultures. Very proud of where I came, came come from. Um, you know, growing up, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked every day at a place called Appleton Papers. And... Um, you know, I grew up in a culture where, as a male, you didn't speak about feelings. And, um, you know, in, in a household where my dad had said, you know, what happens in the house stays in the house. And um, that's kind of the essence of stigma. Um, my my uh, uncles coached the basketball team for the younger generation. And I put this level of expectation on myself um, to be great at, at something that, um, like I just wasn't right. And, um, <clears throat> I also, I didn't put the work in, uh, to be good, but, um, I still had this level of expectation that I put on myself that I didn't live up to. So a lot of that, uh, shame and, and, and guilt that was, that was done by myself from my feelings, 
um, kind of carried with me. Now, that being said, um, through elementary school, in the middle school, I was still on the all-star basketball team. Um, but, like, when it came to high school, I wasn't good enough to start varsity or, or junior high or any of that. Um, and I wasn't willing to put the work in or sit on the bench. Um, you know, and the first time I had a substance, uh, I was about 11 or 12. Um, my dad uh, offered me a beer to try. I didn't like it. And um, needless to say, shortly after, I, I go with a bunch of friends. We go crayfishing. And we go down to the creek. We grab crayfish and we go back to my buddy's house. And um, his dad would give us two beers to cook the crayfish with. Um, only we didn't use the beer to cook the crayfish. We drank the beer. And um, at that time, I had to be home when the streetlights came on, you know. And um, I remember my dad came by to pick me up because it was dark out. And I'm speaking over top of the car so he doesn't smell my breath. And, um, you know, that's... <sighs> That's kind of the where I grew up. Um, first time I was ever introduced to marijuana, my um, my father pulled pulled over to the side of the road, offered it to me, rolled up a joint, and I told him that I did not want to smoke and uh, that I was never going to. And um, there I am again, right? A couple months later, I'm walking down to a basketball practice and uh, I smoke with a couple guys and that, that practice we had to make eight out of 10 free throws and I did not make eight out of 10 free throws. Right. And every time you didn't make it, you had to run up and down every single uh, row of steps in the stadium. And the practice was for an hour and they actually kept it going for like another 20 minutes for me to get this eight out of 10. And I still didn't do it to the point where the coach said, all right, we're, we're, we're done. <laughs> right. Um, and you would think at like that age that I, I should know that, I'm not successful at using a substance, right? Um, and, uh, you know, my main goal from that, going into high school, in ninth grade, I wanted to start varsity on the baseball team, right? And, and there I put the work in. I was going to the weight room. I, I, was, I was in there um, taking reps with my dad at, 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 uh, at the field. And um, we had a scrimmage. It was... Freshman and uh, sophomore versus the seniors, um, juniors and seniors. And I had a grand slam during that during that practice, right? And uh, so I started varsity. Not only did I start varsity, there were guys that just became seniors. Two of them were now sitting the bench because me and another friend are now starting varsity. And one of the guys was the um, the mailman's dad, and I remember like him not being happy about that, right? Um, and in my mind, my ego is through the roof, right? I'm like, you know, I'm the shit. Um, and that, that's kind of where my my mindset was at the time. Um, my dad coached the summer league uh, baseball games or the baseball team. And, um, you know, so give you Dan, Go ahead. Dan, just a question. It's safe to say that you had a supportive family. Yeah. Like supportive to you, a good childhood, right? Yeah, I did. So, so was there a shift in the way that you thought of yourself? You know, you missed those three throws because um, 
you know, you were obviously high and whatnot. And like, you know, there's some shame and, and guilt and dealing with embarrassment. Right. And then you come to the point where you're um, a senior and you make the basketball team and you're feeling like you're the shit. Was there like anything that did that accelerate your using? Was that like helpful to you? Um, I would say through that process, right, to give you an understanding, like I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about anything that I felt, right? It was just normal. That that was my normal. Um, and when I when I did accomplish something, I put my mind to, um, and I put the work in. I it, it kind of put me into, um, you know, we would have. My, my dad would have an end of the year party at the house and, um, he would take a keg into the basement and the parents would drink upstairs and the kids would drink downstairs. So it kind of opened up the door maybe to some of that. Um, but, um, you know, that's just, that was normal for me. Right. Uh, that's actually my question, Danny. Also like, you know, a different point of view than, than, and not, not saying that you're, your family wasn't supportive and involved, but how much do you connect? Like even your father offering you the beer, offering you the weed. Do you do you blame? Do you blame where that took you on him? How did it affect your your relationship? How did it affect you even with what you just said in terms of you know going to them? Yeah, I, you know what? I don't feel like I ever blamed him. I definitely don't today, but I don't feel like I ever did um, because what it comes down to is like this is just the way he knew how to parent. Right. And like, I know that today. Um, but I, I still feel like when he offered me that it was from a place that he knew I was going to be confronted and he wanted me to, in his mind, feel safe and do it with him. Like when we drank at the house, it was at the house. So it wasn't me out at on the streets, driving a car. Um, it was always that element of, of safety. Um, because he, you know, even, I was going to do it anyway, right? Like, so in, so in a way, yeah, in a way, it was more of an enabling without really understanding or knowing, which I think a ton of parents do. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I always, I have, I say to a lot of parents, you know, you didn't get a book when your baby was born that explained, you know, a checklist of of what not to do to prevent them from becoming becoming an addict or alcoholic. Uh, my my parents did some of the same things, thinking that, well, it's safer if they do it at the house. It's safer if they're here and home and getting into trouble, essentially, right? Because of what could happen if they were out there. But in turn, and I'm curious if you relate with this, what I came to find out was that it enabled me not to feel consequences. It enabled me to not get in trouble and maybe have the possibility of my brain making the connection that, okay, this is bad and I'm going to continue to get in trouble if I do. Right. Do you yeah. relate with that? I, I can relate. Um, I can relate. I, I, I feel like that that's also kind of the place where maybe a lot of that comes from is maybe they will learn um, at the house and in, in, in his experience, right? Like, let's say, let's just, I don't, I haven't had this conversation with them. Uh, on this level, but you know, as a father, when 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 I turned down 
smoking marijuana and turned down drinking a beer. Maybe in his mind, he's like, all right, well, this guy, you know, he's going to grow up and not like these things. Um, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, so we're at the point. So you, uh, you're making the basketball team. I'm sorry. You're making it was baseball. Yeah. You make the baseball team. You hit the grand slam in, in, uh, in practice. And where do we go from there? So from there, um, my, my substance use of marijuana elevates and, um, you know, it goes from using the substance on the weekends to waking up and, and, and needing it every day. Right. And then me not having a job and not being able to financially support that. And, um, in high school, what, what it come down to is I would, we, near senior year is, um, skipping class until second or third period, right? I have a relationship with my homeroom teacher that knows I go to the computer room to play video games. So they automatically sign me into school, right? Cause I did it a couple times. What a now racket. Huh? <laughs> What's that? I said, what a racket. Right. And then I skip until third period. I'll go from third to fifth because I got to get English, math, and like social studies. And then I leave again. And then I come back for the class that I need to be at in seventh period. Um, and then I'm done for the day. Um, and, um, you know, at that time, I got into robbing houses with a friend. And um, I was the guy that what we would do is we wouldn't. We wouldn't go to our hometown. It would be another town away from us, right? And we would drive around and look at the house where the grass wasn't cut, the newspaper was in the yard, the car never moved, and we would come back, and I was the guy that would knock on the door, right? And there were times when someone would answer the door, and I always had an alibi, right? I'm here to meet Stacy for a blind date on 3rd Street <laughs> in Blue House, and it would always be like the same color house, and um, they never knew the difference, right? And... uh the houses that didn't answer, those are the ones that we would go in. And, um, you know, one house we went in, um, my buddy's in there and, uh, lift up the bed and there's a gun under the bed. And, um, he says, should we take it? And I said, yeah. And we took the gun and, um, you know, now here we are. <sighs> this is just like the level of life I'm living, living right now. Right. And, um, another friend gets caught with the gun. And comes back to us and, um, I drove the car. So I have accomplished the burglary charge. <laughs> um, and, uh, I said I never went in that house. And, um, yeah, so I had that, right? And then I go, I, I, I managed to get a full ride academic scholarship to Millersville University through this. So I'm really good at writing and I'm really good at math. And those two things helped me accomplish that. And when I got this full ride academic scholarship, you kind of hear what was going on in my life. People didn't think I deserved that, right? Like here's this kid um, who's high all the time and not going cutting classes and he's getting a full ride academic scholarship. Um, I graduated in the top 10 of my class. We graduated only maybe 80 or 90. So that's a small school, just to give you that. <laughs> Still right. impressive, man. Still impressive. Yeah. And um, I go to Millersville University on a Thursday night and to check out the campus. And um, we're drinking. And that's when I had my first experience 
uh, with mushrooms, and it was in a chocolate bar. And for some reason, I had to be at school the next day, right? Like all these days where I skipped, I had to be at school that Friday. Um, so I'm told not to drive, and what do I do? I leave the campus. I go home at like 2 a.m. I'm stopped at a red light, waiting for this light to turn green. I get pulled over, and I was sitting there for so long, they said I never pulled up far enough to trip the green light. Um, so, you know, so now I have this, uh, uh, accomplice to a burglary charge and DUI and I didn't even go to court for the one. So now they put them both together. Um, I get charged. I am now at Schaffner juvenile detention center because I'm under the age of 18. I, um, have to go to weekend boot camp. Uh, which I still can't remember the name of, but I hated it, right? Like I was in, I was in a tent, I had to do manual labor, all these things that I did not like doing, I was forced to do. Did um, you have the same schedule you had at school with that? I wish, right? <laughs> I wish. I would have definitely cut out on moving boulders and rocks. But one thing that we, we had to do is um, there's a place called the Greenbelt in Harrisburg where people ride their bikes, and it's right by the Harrisburg East Mall. I helped build that. So, like, when I drive by, I, I, get, I remember, like, you know, I have that experience that I helped build that, right? Um, and so I go to college, and at college, um, I last maybe a year, right? Like, second semester, I, I partied my scholarship away. And my mom and dad picked me up from school, and I remember sitting in the back seat and um, the feelings that I felt, right? Like, everyone that didn't believe in me, I now proved right. I didn't live up to the level of expectation that I put on myself and that other people put on me. And here I am with my tail between my legs about to go home and live with my parents again. Right. Um, and I get into the restaurant industry right up right away. And, um, you know, one job after another of either quitting or getting fired. And um, I ended up working at a place called Charlie Brown Steakhouse. And um, they gave me an opportunity in management from bartender. I, I was never a bartender before, but I had lied on the application and said that I had bartending experience from another place. <laughs> um, and I learned from there. Like, like I listen, I, I had a lot of skills that I learned through my substance use. Right. Like I'm good at motivating people. Um, I'm good at sales. And I internally advocated for myself in this field, um, in the restaurant industry. And um, from there, I purchased my own house, um, the one my parents lived in. So now here I am, the age of 22, owning a house. And um, my substance use was starting to elevate, um, going into opioid opiates. Um, and that place closed. And then I got a job um, at the melting pot, Harrisburg Melting Pot. At the time, I got a job at the, the melting pot. Right before that, I skipped over. Sorry, I, Red Robin. I went to Red Robin as a kitchen manager. And at, at Red Robin as a kitchen manager, I met my daughter's mom. And it was in a kickball league. And um, she got pregnant. And... Here I am. I can't even take care of myself at this time, and I'm about to have a child on the way. And um, 
my opiate use elevated. And uh, when she told me she was pregnant, um, uh, it was it was hard for me to take. Right. And I spiraled out of control. I, I really spiraled from that point for the next couple of years. That That's kind of when the, the time where it, it really spiraled out of control. And you can look at everything I told you, and it doesn't seem like it's it's. I've really kept it together by any means. Um, but um, I, I, I lose the house that I was living in. I'm back to living with my parents again at the age of 28. Um, and I get a job at the melting pot, Harrisburg melting pot. Um, my my substance of choice had then become heroin around that time, and. Uh, a lot of the never started happening, right? Like, I never used at work. I would always do it before or after. Now here I am at work doing it. And um, I wouldn't, you know, buy or sell drugs at work. And here I was doing that at work. Um, and the, the uncomfortable conversation had to happen where the, the owner pulled me into the office and he said, listen, you have two choices. Either you go get help or I'm going to have to fire you. And and then he said, but if you choose to get help, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get you into treatment. Um, and I, I left there and I walked home from Paxton Street to Steelton. It was uh, like a 45-minute walk. And on that entire walk, I thought about, you know, what my life had become, come to, right? Um, right before that. My daughter moved with my, or my daughter's mom moved with my daughter to Philly, right? So she had to get away from, from me to protect our daughter. And, um, I was in the mindset of like, I, you know, I didn't care about being alive anymore, right? But I cared too much about being high to kill myself. That was the, the, the mindset that I had. Um, and, and I walked home and I, I, you know, I, I start talking to my mom and I cried and I said, you know, I can't live like this anymore. And I'm going to go get treatment, go into treatment. And I went to my first facility. And um, while I was there, um, a gentleman came in and spoke. And, um, you know, when he spoke, it was like my story. And it, but it was through someone else. I felt so unique. I felt like I, no one was like me, right? And then here this guy is speaking about some of the same people I know um, doing some of the same things I did. Um, and, and I realized, like, man, he found recovery, and there, maybe, maybe I can too, right? Like, maybe I can too. Um, and after that, two hours later, I still wanted to go back to leaving the facility and, and using. Um, you know, that's the insanity piece of the uh, of addiction. Like, I, it, it had a hold on me, right? And um, long story short, I AMA'd and left the facility early. Uh, when I came back home, everyone thought I completed because I told them I did. And um, they were all proud of me. Um, and I went back to a substance and ultimately fired from, from that job. Um, you know, I go back home. So, Danny, you know, talk, talk, more, talk you like, get into, like, because we talk, you know, you hear about, um, you know, we mentioned in the podcast in terms of a few times referencing the meetings where, you know, 
compared to the feelings of the speaker, not the story. So talk more about like the, the feelings that you had throughout this and, and the thoughts, like deep, you know, deep into that. So yeah, really understand what you were going through. Okay, so so while I'm in that that facility, um, they give you the option to have someone take a, like a week or two course, so that way they can come visit you. And um, I didn't want anyone to visit me. I didn't want my parents there. I didn't want my daughter there. I didn't want my daughter's mom there. Um, I felt shame. I felt guilt. I was um, really, really struggling. Um, I didn't have purpose in life at the time. I I felt like I was worthless, hopeless. Um, It was, it, it, it was, yeah. That that's where I was at, right? Um, and Danny, I have I have a connection to make. So obviously, you're feeling that in treatment prior to getting the treatment. You know, in the many years that you were ripping and running, you're mm-hmm. feeling those same things at certain points. Obviously, you know the drugs, you know, or alcohol would numb those things. But it's safe to say that you were feeling those things, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it, my goal was to have a substance at all times, right? So even when I had a substance, I was thinking about the next one. Like I wasn't even necessarily enjoying it, it got to the point where I didn't enjoy being high anymore. Like I, I like I needed to be high to maintain. Yeah. And um it was like, you know, I, and I was willing to do anything to do that. Yeah. Um, so still just, rob anything. Yeah, no, I, I definitely relate with that. So within you know, this is like a, a misconception of, uh, that a lot of people have. You know, they think they go to treatment. They think they're just going to stop drugs and, and feel better. Um, you know, the reason or, that I believe you went back to the substances, besides not being ready or, you know, not working on yourself enough, not staying long enough, all of the obvious, right, is because you're still feeling that guilt, shame, depression, you know, all the things that you said you were feeling. And the only way you know how to deal with those is to cope with using a substance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, like, you come out, you start using, and from there, when, you know, when, when do you get sober after that eventually for good? After that first treatment facility? Yeah. No, no. Okay. So um, tell us about that. So what happens after? Yeah, so after that, um, I'm at my parents' house, and... One person almost dies because of me. Uh, we're in a, we're at the Uptown McDonald's and we're in the parking lot. And at this time, to support my substance use, I would sell substances to support my own use, right? And, um, I sit next to me, uh, at this point we're IV heroin and, um, his eyes roll in the back of his head and I smack him in the face. I throw water on him. And, um, you know, I tried to check his pulse and, you know, I was in such panic mode that I left the car and walked away. Like I walked away. I didn't even, I wasn't going to call anyone. Um, that's where I was at mentally. Right. And I walked and for that next two hours, I thought about how I'm going to jail for a long time. They're going to check his phone messages. The drugs were still in the car. Um, I've never seen my daughter again, and 
three hours later or four hours later, he calls and he said, hey, man, what happened? Like, I dodged the bullet. I dodged the bullet. And um, I'm back at home. And my mom told me this story. Um, I'm laying on the bathroom floor and she can't wake me up. And she walks away to call 911. Uh, but every time she walks away, she comes back to wake me up because she thinks that's the moment she needs to. She does never make that phone call. And uh, eight minutes later, I got up, right? Um, those those moments of panic, right? I, at the time, I didn't, you know. I mean, we're talking waking up on my bed with needles still in my arm, blood on my sheets, living at my parents' house. My mom doing my laundry, you know, um, my dad said to me, he said, listen, you can't live here anymore. I don't want to want, have your mom watch you die. Right. And I remember sitting in the living room before that conversation and they were in the other room talking about how they were going to pay for my funeral. You know what I did when I heard that? I went upstairs and I got high. Wow. Right? That's, um, you know, just like you said, Lewis, um, I didn't, I, 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 the best way to not feel for me was to use a substance and um, masked all my feelings. And, um, you know, and, and I'm, uh, you're talking about a person that never spoke about feelings. Like even when I was in that first treatment facility, I didn't speak about feelings. Today's episode is brought to you by the Long Island Coalition Against Bullying. The LICAB has quickly emerged as a pioneer organization fiercely advocating for children and families impacted by bullying and proudly working with many Long Island schools and organizations to maintain and enhance their bullying prevention curriculums. A victim of bullying himself, Joseph A. Salomon is the founder and executive director of the LICAB and has a simple vision for the organization, to reach as many children and families experiencing bullying as possible. For more information on how you can become involved with the LICAB, please visit www.licab.org. The Long Island Coalition Against Bullying is a federally recognized 501c nonprofit charitable organization dedicated for the emphasis and importance of bullying-free communities on Long Island through education, increased awareness, and therapeutic outlets. That's where I was at. And then when I got kicked out of the house, I moved in with my daughter's godfather, and while I'm living there with him, um, his daughter's in the other bedroom, and I leave substances in the bathroom, right, with his daughter right there. And um, the caveat for me staying there was that I don't use a substance. And um, I didn't live up to that. And he kicked me out, said he was going to call the police. And I grabbed what little bit of clothes I could in that time because I was worried the police were going to get me, jumped into my blazer, drove away. And now I'm homeless living out of my blazer and I would park in different hotel parking lots and I would sleep in the back and I would use what little clothes I had to roll up as a pillow and as a blanket. And, um, you know, I, I would, I would support myself by stopping at the gas station and eating like a zebra cake, you know, for lunch and then an oatmeal pie for dinner. And that's just like, all my money went toward the substance and I got into retail theft and I got charged with that. And, um, you know, a guy, what it came down to is I would go into places like Target and I would take items and I would go to the GameStop and sell them. 
And it, it got to the point where when I would hand them my ID, I was getting questions because I was coming there so much. Why are you giving us a brand new video game? Oh, well, I don't have a Nintendo Wii. My dad thought I had one. Da 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 da. Right. So I started sending in someone else to do it for me. And one time I sent a guy in and he came out and the police were there and um, they searched my car, paraphernalia. Um, you know, they went, they asked if I had anything in my pocket and I had a needle in my pocket. I said, no, the needle didn't have a cap. He almost got stuck with the needle. Right. This guy was furious. Um, and at the time, I was so angry at the person that I sent in to do it, right? Like, he's the reason we got caught. Because when I go in, I speak around it every single time. And there's never an issue, right? That's where my mindset is. I'm pissed off. And um, before I go to court, I make the decision. I need to go to treatment. It'll look good in the eyes of the court. And I go to my second facility. Um, when I called, so, uh, all right, so I, I, before that, I went to IOP, right? I thought IOP, you know, intensive outpatient and outpatient would save me from having to go to treatment. And while I'm in IOP, that's when I made the decision to go to treatment. And I'm with my counselor, and she's on, she's in the room while we call on speakerphone. And they asked me, when's the last time I used the substance? I just lied to her. So I had to carry that lie. I said, oh, I haven't done it since Monday. And they said, all right, well, you don't, you don't need to detox when you come in here to treatment. I said, oh, yeah, no, I won't. And, of course, I used on my way into treatment uh, where my daughter's mom drove me and my daughter was in the back seat. And um, there I am detoxing by myself <laughs> at treatment. Um, and, you know. I, I have a quick question. So how important is the appropriate levels of care based off of where your mindset is and where you are physically? Now, you're talking about a typical situation that I deal with on a daily basis, right? You're talking to somebody, they're using heroin, Xanax, you know, substance, you know, alcohol, something that, that you're supposed to be detoxed off appropriately. And they want to, you know, they think they can make it at intensive outpatient. So I want you to talk about that a little bit, you know. Um, I mean, obviously, you made it to detox, but how important are those levels, are, are those levels of care? And, you know, why do you feel they were designed that way? Going. Yeah, um, it's it's dangerous. Um, definitely depending on the substance, right? And I think it's extremely important uh, when an individual has a conversation with the treatment facility that it be one on one and not with someone else in the room. Um, and that's just from my experience. Um, because listen, I was not. I was never. I, I might have been honest five percent of the time leading up to that right and that's everywhere in all areas of life um but if i would have had someone on the other line that i could i could be more forthright and honest to um that might have been different i don't know if it would have you feel like you like can do another addict or alcoholic and they that, let you that, know that you too know. that might have that might have been helpful as well right um yeah but it's extremely important you know um People, I mean, you could literally die of detoxing uh, from certain substances, you know? Yeah. 
So, so Danny, so thank you for sharing, you know, your story and just an amazing, uh, yeah, description of the insanity of the disease, you know, just in terms of continuing to use and use no matter what the consequences, no matter what, you know, what you're uh, risking and in, in losing and giving up. So we want to get to, like, we want to get to the good stuff and we want to get to, uh, you're talking about exactly what you're up to and, and put it out there to the listener in terms of how people can get in touch with you to support you. So yeah. fast forward to like, you know, that, that, what, what it took for you to finally get sober. I want to hear about yeah. your relationship with your daughter and, and then, you know, what you're, what you're up to. All right. I'll, I'll speed this. Um, so in that, in that facility, when I'm there, I have a conversation with my daughter, right? I call her. She says, Daddy, I don't want you to be sick anymore. Right. And that resonated with me. Mm. And I was speaking during a group. And the one guy said to me, what's the number one thing in your life? I said, my daughter is the number one thing in my life. He said, I'm tired of hearing that. Your daughter cannot be your number one thing in your life. You need to be the number one thing in your life for your daughter to be there. And I, and, and in my mind, I was like, who is this guy telling me that? Right. And I went to bed and I was like, wow, man. That might be one of the most powerful things anyone ever said. And um, I called my parents and um, I talked to a group of guys that were in that treatment. Right. It was like their ninth or 10th facility. And originally I was like, what do these guys know? Right. They've done this nine times. They don't know anything. And one guy said he's moving to Florida to go be by the sun and wake up and live and enjoy life because that's what life's all about. And I started listening to people that have been through the same similar experiences I have. And they made the suggestion to move into a recovery house. And um, I call my parents. At this point, I have no money. And I say, listen, I want to move into a recovery house. And they say, if you don't come home and live with us, we can't support you anymore. And I made the tough decision to move into a recovery house. And um, here I am leaving that facility. I completed it. Um, and my daughter's mom uh, helped pay the first week of of rent, which is money I gave her to set to the side. Um, she didn't need to do that. Right. And then her mom put groceries in my fridge. I had a dollar in my pocket. Um, and they showed me grace, right. And they, they showed me support and, um, coming out, I started attending 12 step fellowships. I met a sponsor, my sponsors, anyone in life that has something that you want, uh, whether it be peace, happiness, you listen and you hear them speak, go up to that person, shake their hand, get their phone number and tell them who you are. Right. And that's what I did. Um, and I started surrounding myself around people that were taking their lives to the next level. And in turn, I started doing the same. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to have the things they had. And um, I started looking at my life before that. And everyone I surrounded myself, I kind of gravitated towards. Right. Like I, I was in the uh, using substances because other people are into using substances. And now I see the power of that because I'm now experiencing it in my own life. Um, and it's been a gradual step of getting to know me. And coming out of that second treatment facility, I journaled. I would write how I felt in notebooks um, because I didn't speak about how I felt. And slowly from writing it turned into saying it out loud. And um, that's where I started garnering these friendships. And a lot of those people that I shook their hands are friends of mine and mentors today. Um, today, 
I am now the manager of Cork and Fork Restaurants, a multi-unit assistant general manager. Right, they entrust me with payroll, right, and um, I do the scheduling. I am founder of Hero in the Fight. Hero in the Fight is a grassroots community recovery organization committed to breaking the stigma of addiction, which I had experienced and a lot of people experience, and raising awareness towards the impact it has on individuals, families, and in our communities. Because my use impacted everyone around me. One person can impact over 100 people. Um, and what we do through Hero in the Fight is we, we've held a lot of events, right, leading up to the pandemic. Now we've gotten creative. But we want to let people know you can have in life, you can have fun in life without the use of a substance, right? And families can heal. And there is hope. Um, one of my favorite events we do is on Thanksgiving Eve, right? Thanksgiving Eve, we do a dance leading up to Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving Day, dinner around the table does not look the same for a lot of people. I experienced it in a recovery house where I wasn't, we didn't have Thanksgiving dinner, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there are a lot of families that lost loved ones. And we want to give a positive, impactful experience the night before so they can carry that in through the day, right? That's a lot of the mentality behind events that we do. We've been able to raise money for recovery house scholarships, same barriers that I've experienced and a lot of my friends have. Um, Alcohol-free hygiene items for individuals going into treatment facilities, leaving institutions, going into recovery houses. A lot of us didn't have a lot of that stuff, right? So we're able to give back. And um, those are the types of things that we've been able to accomplish through Hero in the Fight. We have a Facebook group page, Hero in the Fight. Uh, it's a real-time resource for individuals in recovery, family members, or for anyone that just wants to know more, right? Individuals share their experience, strength, and hope. We let others know that they're not alone, and we kind of build each other up on the group page. Um, it's really a beautiful thing. And we have a website, uh, www.herointhefight.org. It was created alongside Penn State Harrisburg. Um, there are tabs on that website that can help you find resources from the family member's perspective, from an individual. Um, we want to make that process easier for people. Um, a lot of my experiences are the driving force behind why I do what I do. Um, and, you know, they've all led me to this moment, speaking on this podcast with you guys, right? I have my daughter in my life today. It was her birthday yesterday, right? Nice. The same girl that, that w didn't want her dad to be sick anymore, she created this shirt, Qualified Hero. See, we made, we made shirts that say, be a hero in the fight against addiction. She said, Dad, I want to make a shirt for kids. Right, and I'm able to show her wow. through my experience in my life and the way I live my life today that you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. I was 31 years old, living with my parents, felt hopeless, dollar in my pocket, right? And now I have people that love me, and I'm able to love back today. I have these gifts of recovery that I would not have if I didn't go through the experience that I did personally. But now I can use that experience as motivation and fuel to everything I do today. And I'm just truly grateful and blessed to be able to sit here and, and say all this, you know? Yeah. You know, Danny, you're truly amazing. You know, for the listeners out there, Danny's a true friend. Every time I call him, he answers his phone. Um, 
you know, we haven't met in person yet, which we definitely have to set up, you know, eventually one of these days. If you're across the United States or specifically in Pennsylvania, you know, and you're uh, struggling with substance abuse or in recovery or um, you're a family member or a loved one that's struggling with somebody that's struggling, uh, reach out to Dan. You know, he's available. His organization is doing a lot of great things. I've watched you grow, like I said in the beginning, um, not only individually, but as an organization. I know you're doing a ton of great things in PA, and I'm looking forward to the progress that you're going to continue to make. You know that, obviously, I'm always here for you, and Jim as well now. So you got you got two friends over at Recovery Media Podcast, and we're looking forward to you know having you on again and letting everybody know the resources. So, um, you know, Danny, thank you for being here. We appreciate you. Once again, why don't you just run through real quick uh, for the listener, you know, where they can find you on Facebook, and, you know, there's a number, and then the website again. Yeah. Uh, my, my personal page, Danny Albert, uh, you can find us at Hero in the Fight. It's a group page on Facebook. Our website, www.herointhefight.org. Uh, we have an email, herointhefight at gmail.com. Um, personal message me, email me. Um, we do recover. Thank you, brother. I love you, man. Have a great day. Thanks, Danny. Love you guys, too. Appreciate you. Take care, man. Just us again, huh? All right. So, yeah, we'll, uh, you know, chat about this quickly. Yeah. We're kind of uh, a little limited with time. But so, yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. You know, he's um, he's a recovery addict helping other recovering addicts and families. I mean, there's nothing better, in my opinion, than I that. kept thinking, you know, our, you know, experience, strength, and hope in the rooms. And that's, you know, what he was talking about in terms of, being driven by his own experiences, you know, like you are and, uh, and doing it in such a direct, powerful, you know, in service way, uh, and doing whatever it takes and being willing to do, you know, whatever it takes for people that, that are struggling. Yeah. And, uh, and even to speak into speaking of experience, like, and this has happened before with a couple of other guests that we've had, you know, here I am, um, you know, 30 years, 30 years in recovery and hearing other people's story and hearing the insanity. Like I have a stomach ache. You know, it's just, it's, it's hearing it. It just, I, I never, it never, I don't even know how to describe it in terms of like, you think like I should, I should know better. Nothing should surprise me or nothing should affect me. But to hear people's pain, to hear people's just even the, just the story and, continuing you know and and you know it, it happened the same thing with me that's that's what happened we all have we all have our insanity within within our addiction in terms of continuing to use and drink or whatever it is no matter what until you know we're blessed with that moment of, of like enough enough and, and yeah, the clarity no, of yeah. that yeah all right guys Absolutely. thanks again for another great episode thanks for being here everybody Recovery Media Podcast. This is Lewis Iacona and Jim Grant signing off. Take care. You can find us on social media at the Recovery Media Podcast. And of course, download, rate, review, and subscribe wherever great podcasts are found.